Emile Durkheim, one of the undisputed founders of sociology and a notoriously skeptical mind. At every stage of his career, he aspired to overcome the shortcomings of his previous work and try to find new revelations in a variety of social phenomena, from solidarity and suicide to rules and religion. And never was he satisfied. A truly inspiring search for society, whatever that may be. My name is Dominic, and today we're chasing society with Emil Durkheim. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Sounds familiar? Sure it does. I suppose most of us have heard this phrase in one version or another. It is oftentimes used, and probably misused, in contexts of sports, for example, team performance, or even as more or less convincing pep talk at work. In the context of Western culture, this phrase can be traced back to ancient Greek philosophy, of course where it prominently appears in Aristotle's metaphysics, but also at other places. And not for the first time in the history of Western philosophy, you will find this catchphrase in a slightly different formulation than the one that is so famous. I know, sounds a little bit like splitting hairs, and sometimes it probably is. But in this case, in the Aristotle case, the original wording actually has some interesting implications. Because Aristotle states, and I quote, In the case of all things which have several parts, and in which the whole is not, as it were, a mere heap, but the totality is something besides the parts, there is a cause of unity. So for us, what matters here is the word besides. Aristotle is not saying that something is greater than its parts. Aristotle is saying that something is created besides of its parts. That means it's somewhat external and different in character. And this leads us back to Emil Durkheim. In Durkheim's view, we could simply replace the word parts with individuals and the word totality with society, which results in a conceptualization of society that is something besides its individuals. Okay, time for some practical advice. So one of the biggest mistakes that I've made in my scholarly life so far is to not read the preface. I mean, those parts of books before the introduction, oftentimes after the acknowledgements, which, well, I'm not quite sure what exactly they are defined to be, but I have learned that they are quite useful, at least with regard to theoretical books, and especially with regard to theoretical books written by classics. And Emil Durkheim's books are a striking example of this. In the preface to the first edition of the Rules of the Sociological Method, basically every sentence could be a starting point for an important discussion. An important discussion not only in the time when Durkheim wrote the book or published it, but also an important discussion for contemporary sociology. Discussions about methods, the role of theory, the definition of society, epistemology, you name it, everything's there. He starts the preface by stating that 
a science of society, if it should exist and if it should be taken seriously, cannot start from, let's say, intuitive assumptions that we have about society. We cannot just treat society from the point of view of the ordinary man, as he calls it. According to Durkheim, a scientific study of social phenomena requires us to leave behind the modes of thought that we are most familiar with. So if you happen to find Durkheim's approach to sociology a bit odd, well, it's probably on purpose. So, time to get irritated. A social fact is any way of acting, whether fixed or not, capable of exerting over the individual an external constraint. Or which is general over the whole of a given society, whilst having an existence of its own, independent of its individual manifestations. So let me bring this concept into our daily lives by asking you a simple question. Have you or have you not been guilty of stating the following at least once in your life? I will not do what society wants me to do. I am not like everybody else. I am different. So if you find yourself guilty of using one of these phrases, then you can consider yourself guilty of having argued against what Durkheim would define as a social fact. Maybe you didn't want to dress like society wants you to dress, or you didn't use the exact words that society wants you to use, or you used words that are considered offensive or vulgar, or whatever it may be. You have somewhat broken the rules of conduct that have been around. So if you did so, or if you claim to do so, or if you try to do so, you have wrestled with social facts. Well, virtually. Society, by means of, for example, your parents or teachers, they teach you how to behave, how to speak, which type of grammar to use, which type of words to use, which sounds to make, what is okay, what is not okay. And these rules that you are taught, they're external to you in the sense that they have been around before you were born and they will probably be around should you not be here anymore. So they're external. You can break them, but you cannot change them by means of breaking them. They have a greater power. You are basically powerless. Language or manners, of course they change, but they change over longer periods of time and not because one single individual wanted to change them. It takes a longer process. And these aspects of social life, of our everyday life, is what Durkheim wants to get at. This for him is the essence of a society. That there are things that are around, not because specific individuals carry them around or decided to introduce them. They just are around because they are being reproduced by individuals who are born into them and survive even their deaths. So just as much as Aristotle believes that a totality can be something beyond the sum of its parts, Durkheim believes that a society or social facts can be something beyond the individual manifestations, that is beyond the individuals that live in a society, that a society consists of. And on the basis of this conceptualization, he can then argue for a positivistic approach to society and a positivistic sociology. Because we, the individual manifestations, can look at social facts as something, well, external, outside, independent of us. But not only does Durkheim state that this should be the focus of the social sciences, he goes a step further and says that because of this external character, we might even go all the way and treat them 
as if they were external objects. The first and most basic rule is to consider social facts as things. And if we even accept this premise, Durkheim can argue for a type of social science that is really close to natural sciences, because we can essentially approach social phenomena, social things, social facts, in the same way as a physicist would approach physical objects. And sure enough, this proposition is as controversial today as it was when Durkheim published it. Which leads us to the preface to the second edition, which is interesting because here Durkheim addresses the various criticisms that had been directed against him and against his approach. So this is a very insightful piece in order to understand and to clarify Durkheim's vision for sociology or social sciences. When you read the preface to the second edition, it becomes really clear how much Durkheim is concerned with taking sociology away from philosophy, not making it into yet another branch of philosophy, as he puts it. Apparently, he saw a great risk that sociology would end up being another type of philosophy with elements of speculation and metaphysics, and he seems to be really concerned about that. So he really pushes hard to get away from that type of thinking. And he really reminds me sometimes of what Marx and Engels were doing in the German ideology, where they also attacked idealism and speculation and philosophy as having lost touch with reality and starting from heaven before going to earth. At the same time, Durkheim clarifies that he's not a materialist. Social facts are things, but that doesn't mean that they are material things. And he's very clear about that. Things do not automatically need to be material things. He takes, well, what I would consider a Kantian point of view. Society is not like a chair or a table with material qualities, with smells or a color or whatever it may be. A society is a thing. In other words, you cannot simply understand it by means of introspection. You cannot reason your way to understanding it. You have to observe it and you have to gradually reach an understanding of it on the basis of what it gives you. So you slowly increase your understanding of it by having more and more observations and by going deeper and deeper to the core of the phenomenon. Simply speaking, we as members of a society are not automatically able to fully understand this society and the social phenomena and social facts that this society holds. So we are members of a society, but our individual consciousness does not automatically entail everything that the collective consciousness entails. So our brains, our understanding is not simply a photograph or a copy of society's understanding of itself. Society has, in Durkheim's understanding, its own consciousness. And this consciousness, this collective consciousness, is as external, as alien, as distant from us as any other person's consciousness would be. The fact that we are a human being with a consciousness does not give us access to the consciousness of another human being. So just as a psychologist needs to gradually understand how the consciousness, how the mind of another person works, a sociologist also needs to gradually understand how the consciousness of society works. It's the same mechanism. 
And yes, of course, it's certainly easier for us to understand another human being's consciousness than an animal's consciousness. So there are, of course, differences. Not everything is equally distant from us, just as much as a society which we know very well may be easier for us to understand as a society that we have no access to. But it can also be quite the opposite, that a society or social group that is really close to us prevents us from seeing really what's going on because we are so accustomed to it that it's almost impossible for us to get a distant external objective perspective. And in any case, irrespective of how distant or how close the other object may be, none of them will reveal itself without us being observers first. None will reveal itself simply on the basis of what we already know. You always need to observe and you always need to carefully analyze what is going on before you can really claim to have a better or deeper understanding of that phenomenon, of that group, of that society. So all of a sudden Durkheim's formulations and definitions may sound a little less irritating. He certainly did downplay the role and the power that individuals have over their own behavior. But he was at the same time also really aware of the fact that individuals cannot be trusted, at least not without proper training. If you just let individuals analyze the society which they are a part of, they will probably apply and continue using all the prejudice that they have learned or that they have been taught at some point in their lives. So what he wants to tell us is step out of your prejudice, step out of your cliches, get a view that is more external, more from the outside, and have a fresh look that is not spoiled by everything that society has made you believe. And in that sense, at least for me, the idea of social facts or the concept of social facts is a very interesting one and still worth being debated. And in order to do so, it would be good to see it in action. So watch out for the next episode of Chasing Society. Thank you for listening. I hear you soon.